A reading of Holy Scripture is from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And this is in connection with the passage from Ephesians 4 that we were looking at earlier. Here's what Paul has to say. This is the Word of God. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you would turn your Bibles to the 73rd Psalm, our sermon this morning comes from Psalm 73. I will read in its entirety. Hear now the reading of God's most holy and inspired word. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace, violence covers them like a garment." Their eyes bulge with abundance, they have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression, they speak loftily. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know, and is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children." When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. 
Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all your works. The grass withers and the flowers fall to the ground, but the word of God stands forever. Let us pray that he would make his word effectual to our hearts. Our Heavenly Father, you have promised us the gift of the Holy Spirit, our Comforter, who will remind us of everything that you have given us. He applies the word to our lives. And so, Father, we do pray this morning that as we hear your word read and preached, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would apply it to our lives. Help us to remember the things that your word says, the warnings and promises. Help us to meditate on them, to practice them in our lives. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, what do we do when the things that we believe from God's Word don't seem to line up with the things that we see in the world? When the things that we hear preached from the pulpit are different than the things that we experience when we go out into the world? You see, that's the psalmist's struggle in Psalm 73. He begins by saying, I know that God is good to his people. I know that he has promised to bless those who follow him. And yet, it's not when I see, when I look around me. He says, I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We too often struggle with this kind of envy or this kind of discrepancy between what we believe and what we sometimes see, what we see with the eyes of faith and what we see with our own eyes of flesh. We too need to heed what the psalmist has to say here, to remember God's promises, to put our trust in Him, to have an eternal perspective beyond what our eyes might show us. I'm going to begin here by looking at the psalmist's struggle in the first uh, few verses, and then we'll look at the experience that the psalmist had that changed his perspective on life, and then where he ended up putting his hope and his trust. So the psalmist says, my 
uh, feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He, he saw this discrepancy, as it were, a seeming discrepancy between what the Word seemed to be saying and what he saw with his eyes. And he said, I almost slipped. I almost fell into a trap when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on to describe what he saw that made this difficulty. He says in verse 4, there are no pangs in their death. Could be not simply in their death, but even leading up to their death. Their lives, their death, they go through it with one easy motion. No problems come their way. No uh, um, difficulties. He says, but instead of that, their strength is firm. And and what this actually says in Hebrew is, it says that uh, their bellies are fat. And you might say, what does that mean? Why, Why would the psalmist say that? Well, Um, Bear in mind that Hebrew culture, like many other cultures um, in our world, um, not our own, um, see fatness as being a sign of prosperity, of strength and health. And what he's saying here is is that they are healthy and strong. They are abundantly provided for. They have everything that they could ever want. They have no lack. He goes on in verse 5, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. They don't, the, the, the common ailments that seem to fall on most every people, well, well, these wicked people, they seem to be getting away scot-free from all this. And as a result of this, pride covers them as their necklace. Remember, these aren't the righteous people he's talking about. He doesn't say the righteous, well, they have no problems in life. The righteous, their strength is firm. The righteous, they're not plagued. No, he says, these are the wicked. The wicked go through life with no difficulties, it seems. And as a result of this, they simply increase in their pride. They think, I'm living wickedly and getting away with it. And it encourages them to, to further pride and even violence. Pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. This is um, this language of putting things on. Like, it's like getting dressed, Right? And, and this is something that the psalmist speaks of here, and it occurs in other places of Scripture as well, even the passage that we read from earlier in Ephesians. Paul speaks quite often of, of the way that we live as put on and put off, right? Put off the ways of sin and put on righteousness. It's for, the reason that he says that is because the way that we live our lives, it's kind of like... Um, the clothes that we wear, you know. And here the wicked, they get up in the morning and they put on a necklace of pride and they put on clothes of violence, right? It's their chosen way of living and of, of acting. And, and so because they seem to be getting away with their wickedness, they, they, it uh, furthers them in their, in their pride. They put on violence as a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance and they have more than their heart could wish. And they, that is to say, their heart overflows with their imaginings. And so they scoff and speak wickedly. Now, um, it seems to be saying that they, they scoff, they speak out oppression. With their words, they oppress others. And they speak loftily. Again, this is sort of a parallel to verse 6. You know, the wicked, well, they, they speak out oppression They put on violence, and in all this, their pride is uh, unsatiated. Their pride is bulging out, as it were, of their faces because they think they're getting away with it. And so they set their mouths, in verse 9, against the heavens. 
Their tongue walks through the earth. They're not even afraid or ashamed to speak out against God himself. They think, God, who is he? Look look at me. they're, They're secure in their wickedness. And they speak out against God. And they trample men with their words. And as a result of these things, the people of God even are led astray. Verse 10, therefore his people return here. His, his, his people, I think this is referring to, to God, as in verse 11. People of God turn back at these things. They see the wicked prospering and they think, well, they're getting away with it. And they're led astray. They turn away from God. And it says, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And this is perhaps one of the more challenging uh, verses in this uh, passage what is this getting at? The waters of fullness are drained by that. I think what this is saying is, is that when they see the wicked and they see that they seem to be getting away with things, they drink it up like water and they say, that's what I want. And they, they guzzle it down and, and turn away from God. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? They say, look at these people. They, they live to flaunt God's word. They, they, they disobey his law, they ignore his precepts, and yet nothing bad has happened to them. They're going along just like normal. Well, how does God know? Is there knowledge? In other words, does God see? Does he know? How can God possibly know what's going on? Wouldn't he zap them if he could? And this is uh, something that we hear quite commonly um, uh, from others around us, perhaps, and perhaps even from, from those in the church. And the argument goes something like this. Well, uh, wickedness in this world, well, um, you know, well, either there isn't a God, or, or maybe he doesn't know what's going on, or maybe he doesn't care, or maybe he isn't powerful enough to do anything about it, right? That's what the psalmist is struggling with. How could God allow these things to happen? How could God allow these wicked, oppressive people to get away with with murder, as it were. They're oppressing the people of God, and they have no troubles. He says, they question whether God even knows anything. And then in verse 12, he sums things up. He says, behold, these are the ungodly. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. They hate God. They mock God. They cut down the people of God, and they're getting away with it. He says, but as for me, he says, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. That is to say, it's for nothing that I've sought to have a pure heart and clean hands. I've, I've tried to do what was right, and yet it's availed me nothing. Why? Because every day, all day long, I've been plagued and chastened every morning. Every morning I wake up sick in heart at my own situation. I try to do what's right, but I just get difficulty. Now, we too struggle with these difficulties because we look around us. We see perhaps co-workers who disobey God, co-workers who cheat and lie, and yet they get the promotion. They get a raise. We see our friends disobeying God's laws, living in immorality, and yet they seem to be having all the fun. And we look at our own lives and we say, but I'm trying to do what's right. 
I'm trying to follow the Lord. And I just have difficulty in this life. We can become envious. There's kind of two responses that we sometimes have. The first is is that we can become um, angry with God. We can say, God, that's not fair. Why don't you do something about this? And the second is is we we can become envious of their wickedness. We can look at the way that the wicked live and we can wish that we too lived like that. It can even um, cause us to fall into temptation to see that they're having so much fun disobeying God and nothing bad has happened to them, so why not, right? We too need to guard our hearts against this kind of envy. And that's what the psalmist was going to address next. He says in verse 15, he said, if, if, I, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. And that is to say, he says, if I had just stopped in verse 14 and just said, look, the wicked are getting away with it, he said, I would have betrayed the people of God. And, and the sense here is not just the people of God, but the generation of your children. It's pointing to the, to the future, right? If, if I were to speak in the assembly and say, uh, well, uh, the wicked are prospering, then though the next generation coming up would be led astray by my words. Um, it's a reminder to us that we have responsibility. As we read earlier, we are members of one another. We have a responsibility to one another. We have a responsibility not to let careless words slip from our mouths, to go around ranting against our problems and saying, well, why is this happening to me? We have responsibility, what we say and what we do to one another, that we don't betray the generation of God's children. Of course, this is especially true for um, officers of the church, ministers, elders, Um, but all of us have some sort of responsibility towards one another, don't we? Um, We're grandparents or parents or aunts and uncles or even older siblings or mature um, people in the church. We We have a responsibility to set an example to one another with our words and with our actions. Because what are we saying when we choose to sin? We're saying, well, uh, God doesn't really care about this. If we consciously uh, choose to sin, especially in front, of, in front of others, we're saying, God doesn't know, God doesn't see. It's far better for me that I disobey God than that I suffer for doing what's right. And so we can betray the people of God, with our words and with our actions. Now, I want to clarify something here. I'm not saying that we can never talk about it. You know, if you're struggling with this sort of thing, you should never talk about it and just, you know, you know shut it up inside and, and don't, you know, ignore it. No, there's a, there's a proper and appropriate way to speak about these things, right? That we can go to the elders of the church and we can share our struggles with them, but it's always seeking um, for, um, for understanding. It's seeking to be faithful to the Lord, um, the, the kind of speaking that, is, uh, that betrays the children of God is the kind that is rash, that, um, that is, you know, sort of, we grumble and complain about God's providence in our lives. It's good for us to wrestle with these difficulties and even to seek counsel, but we need to do so in a responsible way, and, and seeking guidance from the Word and counsel from others. And so the psalmist describes the experience that he had. He said, I'm not going to stop at verse 14. I'm not going to betray the children of God by simply saying that uh, the wicked are prospering. But he he says, but then let me tell you about the experience that I had. He says, I was thinking about these things. In verse 16, 
when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. He says, it was, it was, it was a wearisome task. It was, it was grating and painful for me as I, I was pondering these things in my head. Why do I suffer? And why do the wicked seem to prosper? And he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. What was it that the psalmist saw when he went into the sanctuary of God? He tells us he saw the end of the wicked. How did he see that? Well, he saw a beast led up to the altar, slaughtered, the blood running down, tied onto the horns of the altar and set aflame. He says this is a picture of God's judgment against sin. This is what God demands of the sinner for him to be reconciled. This is what God will do to all those who don't take their refuge in Christ. He goes on in verse 18, surely you set them in slippery places. In other words, they may be skating along just fine right now. They may look like they're on top of the world, but in a moment, they will be gone. They will be in the dust. Just like that lamb or beast fattened for the slaughter, right? They're doing fine, eating grass, and then just like that, their end comes. This psalmist, a different psalmist, I guess, but, but elsewhere in the Psalms, we, we, we see the, the wicked described as being like a grass that is flourishing, right? Grass that's green and lush uh, and growing. And he says, the wicked are like grass. They will be cut down. They may look like they're doing fine, but the lawnmower will come and crop them to the ground, and that will be the end of the wicked. He says, he says here, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment, in an instant, when they die, the Lord will bring them into judgment. They will be consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. And this is to say, you know, when you, you are asleep and you have a dream and it seems so real and so vivid, and then you wake up and it's gone. You think, what was I dreaming about? And, and it says, just the same way, when the Lord awakes, their image will vanish like smoke. The Lord will destroy them utterly. Now, this is the first of two things that the psalmist is realizing here when he goes into the sanctuary, when he sees that beast slaughtered and consumed on the altar. The first thing he sees is, this is the end of the wicked. They will be destroyed. But there's another aspect of this as well, and I think we see that in the next couple of verses. He says, thus, my heart was grieved, I was vexed in my mind, I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. I think the psalmist is recognizing here um, that when I was going astray, I was like that beast destined for slaughter. In other words, he goes into the sanctuary and he sees the beast, the, the blood running down, the flames consuming, it, and he says, that should have been me. And this is, of course, the nature of, of substitutionary sacrifice, right? Um, you know, not only is, is the slaughter of, of a sacrifice a picture of God's judgment of sin, but it's also, uh, take, it shows what we deserved, and it shows the grace that God has given to us. And so I think what's happening here is the psalmist, um, after, uh, he, he, as he looks about him, he sees the wicked, and he's confused. He, he doesn't understand. And when he goes into the sanctuary, he goes into God's worship, 
the Lord resets his heart and gives him an eternal perspective. No longer looking at the temporal things of, oh, well, uh, you know, um, why, why do they have more money than me and why am I suffering? God redirects his heart and says, no, no, you need to, to, be, to be, be paying attention to this. This is what I rescued you from and this is what will happen to the wicked. Of course, um, we too, although we don't sacrifice um, the blood of bulls and goats, we too have a sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ given for us. It's substitutionary, Right? And when we think about the death of Christ, separation from God, the the cruel death of the cross, we too can see that as being a picture of what God will do to the wicked. Think about it. If what it took for you to be reconciled to God was that the Son of God himself took on human flesh, suffered on this earth, died a painful death of the cross, if that's what God demanded of us, as it were. He provides himself the sacrifice, but that's what he demanded of us, that we might be made right with God. You think he's going to lightly pass by those who aren't hiding in Christ? If he demands the blood of his own son to reconcile us to him, those who despise Christ, they will be utterly destroyed. They have no hope apart from Christ. When we see the death of Christ, we see God's righteous judgment taken out on sin, on our own sin. And we also see, when we look and we think of the cross, we can think, that should have been me. We should have been those sacrificed, um, dying to pay for our own sins. Now, there's a particular application of this, I think. Um, Just as the psalmist in his in his uh, despair as he considered um, this, his, the, the prosperity of the wicked, um, he went into the sanctuary of God. He was, he was wise. And what did he do? He went to the means of grace that God had given. He turned to the Lord. And we too, when we struggle with sin and with doubt and temptation, we too are to turn to the Lord and seek him in his means of grace. In a sense, you could almost say that the sacrifices were part of the Old Testament means of grace, if you want to put it that way. And, and we um, can, can very profitably do the same thing, especially um, in the Lord's Supper. I mean, all the means of grace in the Word, sacraments, and prayer, but specifically in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, where we consider the death of Christ on our behalf, the substitutionary atonement. And as we uh, think about the, the um, bread and the wine, as we taste them, and we reflect on the body of Christ broken for us, the blood that was shed, we too can say, this is what God demands of the wicked. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. And we too can say, that should have been me. And the Holy Spirit can work in our lives, just as in the psalmist, to redirect our hearts, to give us an eternal perspective. And so the um, psalmist here, as he has had this experience, as he's been struggling with, with the prosperity of the wicked, he goes into the sanctuary and he has this experience um, as he sees um, the mercy of God given to him and as he sees the promise that God will judge the wicked, he's encouraged to put his trust um, completely in the Lord. And so he puts his hope, and we'll look at that starting in verse 23, 
He says, thus my heart, sorry, not verse 21, verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by your right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. He reflects here on the promises of God. There's three, I think, in particular that we want to look at. Nevertheless, he says, I am continually with you. God himself has promised us never to leave us or forsake us. Jesus himself says, behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. This is a promise of something that can never be taken away. Though we may lose everything that we have, though we may be plagued in our bodies and our minds with sickness, yet the Lord Jesus is with us. No one can take us out of his hands. This is the perspective that we need when we wonder, where is God when I'm suffering? He is holding you in his hands. He has promised. You see that in verse 23, the second part of that. You hold me by my right hand. He upholds our, our lives. He guides us. Verse 24, you will guide me with your counsel as he gives us his word, as he has given us the Holy Spirit to direct us and lead us in the truth. These are gifts more precious than anything the wicked could ever buy with money. Though the wicked may increase in riches, and yet we have been given things far more precious in the sight of God. Afterward, he says, you will receive me to glory. The wicked, well, one of these days, they will be cut down. They will be no more. In an instant, they're gone. And they will enter into God's wrath and judgment for all eternity. But for those who trust in the Lord, those who follow in his ways, we will be received into glory, into the presence of God himself. And so the psalmist says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. Nothing else in heaven or in earth is as precious and valuable as God himself, and he has given himself to us. If you think about it, anything good in this life, anything that we could ever have or imagine, if it's truly good, it's something that was created by God himself, right? And as such, God himself um, is, is the, the perfect reality of anything good, and if we have God himself, we don't need necessarily the things. I mean, he, he gives us gifts, and it's not wrong to have those or to use those. But we don't need them at the end of the day. If we have God himself given to us, holding our right hand, keeping us from stumbling, we have everything that we need. We have the best of anything that there could be. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Although one day we will all pass away, and yet God is holding us by his hand, and he is the strength of our heart. He is our portion. He's our inheritance. The wicked, they get what they want now, and they will be destroyed but we, even though we may suffer many things in this life, are given 
God himself is our inheritance. He says, Indeed, those who are far from you shall surely perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. That is, those who have been unfaithful to the Lord will be destroyed. And he says, But as for me, it is good to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. This is what we need to do when we come upon this kind of envy, this difficult situation, when we consider those who hate the Lord, those who hate his people, and yet seem to be prospering in this earth. And we can we could think of many examples, perhaps the people that we know, or perhaps, um, you know, for example, uh, many of the, the, the people that our society has set up as celebrities are very wealthy and also hate God and hate his people and seem to want to do nothing but, um, but speak out against God. And when we are faced with these situations, when we wonder, why does God allow this? We, too, can put our trust in the Lord God. We can draw near to Him by the means of grace, the Word, sacraments, and prayer, asking that by His Holy Spirit, He would direct our hearts to have a perspective, that we would see that He Himself is far more valuable than anything else that we could ever think or imagine in this life. And so... It is good for us to draw near to God. We will put our trust in Him alone. Let us pray that the Lord would help us to do so. Our Heavenly Father, You have given us Your Word. You have given us the Holy Spirit. We thank You that even when we are in difficulty and trial, You direct our hearts back to You. We pray that You would do so that you would help us to see your beauty and goodness, your value above all other things in this life. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. We pray that you would help us to live as you have called us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.